all of our patrons will automatically qualify for our exclusive prize draw. At the end of the season, eight of them will be randomly selected and written into one of the thrilling chapters of season five. To enter, click the link in our description and sign up as a patron today. As children, many of us seek out the dark aspects of society through the media. Most of us are curious about the horror films that we were so often told were not for us. Enticed by curiosity, as the warning did nothing but create a forbidden fruit for us to pick. In my teenage years, the internet was fairly new, and the ability to differentiate between what was fake and real was a skill not yet acquired for most. There was no Google to sit and check on the validity of the videos that we saw. That said, I remember witnessing the hanging of a dictator. I remember seeing unnerving sights of bestiality. I remember watching a man's beheading as it played on my old square computer screen. It is perfectly normal to be curious about the dark aspects of life that your parents had taken so much time to hide away from you. But what if that curiosity went deeper than that? What if, as some of us got older, that curiosity became an obsession? What if that obsession became a desire? My name is Luke Mordew, and this urban legend is Snuff Films. Pornography has existed for as long as there has been a means in which to create it. This we know to be true. Although it didn't officially grow into what we recognize today until the 1920s, now over a century old. However, it wasn't until the 1960s that the world's attitude towards sex would begin to change, igniting a fire in pornography that burns with its intense heat to this very day. Soon, Previously unspoken fetishes, needs, and wants began to make their way to the screen, giving even the most niche audiences something to enjoy. Although, somewhat inevitably, with this came certain pathways to darker, stranger parts of human desire. In many ways, the normalization of pornography required a desire to push it further, with filmmakers and producers trying to outdo the other. Now, decades later, this has led to particular streaming websites with an overwhelmingly large index of content from the more mild to the uncomfortably extreme. In horror, a similar thing has occurred. Many of us have heard tales of horror films causing audiences to faint in the past. This is most likely a mixture of clever marketing and its own little urban legend. However, there is undoubtedly an element of believability to it when we see what was considered too far for past audiences. We see things in cinema today that could have never been dreamed of before. The amount of gore, violence and graphic sex that is available today would offend the most open of viewers in the past, and yet it continues to grow. Just like pornography, Every few years, a new film comes out that pushes the boundaries of what society will accept. Body horror has become a common sight in the darker end of films, with some becoming so violent 
that they have been categorized as torture porn. We may hear talks of snowflakes and everyone being offended in today's society, but in this aspect of things, we are undeniably desensitized to violence so much more than before. Perhaps it is simply that we all know so much more about the process now, leaving us deep down understanding that it is only make-believe. I can sit and watch the goriest scene imaginable and not even flinch, most likely due to a history of watching and working in horror. Although I would like to think that if I saw it happening for real, my reaction would be far less numb. With this ever-growing desensitization to the graphic nature of film, and with the constant need to go further in order to experience that adrenaline rush in the visuals that we see, is it so hard to believe that a few immoral individuals with the finances to do so would try and get that buzz from the most extreme outlet possible? In my telling of an encounter with snuff films, we will follow three young men who have been given what they consider to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Kane and Jeff had been friends since high school. They had been privately educated and had already travelled much of the world thanks to their family's wealth. Drugs and wild, money-led parties were normal occurrences, alongside holidays to exotic locations and weekend trips to Vegas. To them, this was a standard way of living and what they had always known. Brian was different. He grew up in an average lower middle-class household, not struggling by any means, but nothing like the others had experienced. It was due to a very fortunate investment that he made in his mid-twenties that he found himself elevated to the heights of the wealthy and privileged. The twosome of Kane and Jeff had become a threesome fairly swiftly after meeting Brian, as the two men decided to take him under their wing. Together, they had enjoyed many party weekends away in Amsterdam and afar, but they lived very much by the mantra of what happens in Vegas. Tonight, this element of secrecy was about to be taken to the extreme as the men excitedly made their way towards a large, inconspicuous and seemingly abandoned warehouse that sat out in the middle of the countryside. Now the young men were turning 30, the thrills they got from their antics they experienced had worn thin, and the excitement of danger and mischief was becoming harder and harder to recreate. It was only a week before this night that Jeff had invited the others to witness something they had never seen before. He never disclosed just how he got hold of the tickets, or who from, claiming that the less they knew, the better. Although, he did tell them that the tickets were for a one-time screening of a real-life snuff film. They didn't know what the plot would be, they didn't know who would be the victim or who would be the perpetrator. They didn't know who had made it or why. They just knew that if they turned up at their secret location the following week, they would be able to be part of something that exists to many only in myth. 
Kane and Jeff were excitedly talking about what they expected to see as they approached the warehouse with hushed voices, although Brian remained cautious. He wasn't even sure if he genuinely believed what they were supposedly about to see. A part of him hoped that it would be nothing but a prank or a fake. Of course, he kept this to himself, not wanting to seem square in front of his new friends. They entered the building through a small door, stopping into the darkness of the warehouse whilst dust, wood, and old metal crunched under their feet. It doesn't look like anything's here, Kane would exclaim as they studied their surroundings. I swear, if you've been making this up, he added in a playful, threatening manner. Jeff laughed it off, although it was clear that even he was growing more nervous that this would turn out to be a complete disaster. Luckily for them, this concern was quickly alleviated as a tall, broad man stepped out from behind a doorway, wearing a long black coat and gripping a torch in his hand. He walked towards them, staring at the men with an intimidating glare, studying their every move. Name? He asked with a deep, threatening voice. Kane and Brian hesitated, unsure in what to say. But Jeff confidently opened his mouth, as if trying to play the part of someone far more comfortable here than he was. He blurted out all three of their full names without hesitation, causing Kane and Brian to grow instantly frustrated and nervous. What the hell? Kane exclaimed. I don't want my full name out here. Before Jeff could even reply, the doorman chimed in with, no name, no entry. Jeff nodded to Kane as if to say, see, before turning back to the doorman again. I need your phones and your IDs, the doorman stated, causing the men discomfort once more. Even Jeff was now growing uncomfortable by just how much of their identity they were giving away. The doorman studied the hesitant men and sighed, putting his hand out, ready to receive what he had just requested. Just do it, guys, Jeff insisted, reaching into his pocket and pulling out his wallet and phone. The others followed suit, frustrated, but accepting their requirements. Once they had handed over their identification and mobile phones, the men were patted down and escorted into the other room. The room was cold, dark, and small. Several seats had been placed in the middle of the room, all facing a blank wall ahead. A projector sat in the back of the room, ready to show the horrifying content once everyone had arrived. Seated in the front row, a couple were already waiting, an older man and his wife who he held tightly with his arm around her. He turned back to the young men as they entered, sharing a knowing smile with Jeff, who nodded again, trying to omit the confidence of a man who had been here before. The doorman closed the door behind them. Jeff and Kane stepped further inside, studying the area, fascinated by what they saw. Brian, on the other hand, stayed behind, remaining by the door as he watched it all unfold from afar. But as he watched his friends edge closer to the seating area, he heard a small latch lock shut behind him. He turned and instinctually pulled at the door that had now been locked. This made him even more uncomfortable than he already was. He turned back to the others and paced towards them. They've locked us in, he whispered, but by now they had both settled into the environment. Brushing him off with a condescending smirk as Kane replied, well, they don't want people in and out of the film now, do they? Brian remained stood as the others took their seats. He studied the chairs around him, confused as to why so many were empty. 
The room had been laid out as if they were expecting 20 people, yet here they were as a five. He turned to the projector at the back of the room, studying it as it switched on and began to warm up. Above it, he could see the lens of a camera pointing down into the room, a red light blinking beside it. We're being filmed, he whispered, turning to the others again. They need to keep track of who's seen it, I imagine. Will you relax? Jeff shot back in a frustrated tone. Brian sighed, admitting that he was getting a little worked up. He sat beside his friends and took a deep breath, nodding his head as he told himself to enjoy the experience. But before he could think for too long, the room began to glow as the projector beamed the film onto the screen ahead of them. At first, the men watched as a young woman walked down into a candle-lit basement over the sounds of a very ominous and spooky soundtrack. She was confused and nervous as she entered the room, seemingly unaware that she was being filmed. It wasn't long until the attack began and the brutal murder was taking place in front of their very eyes. A man wearing a cat mask and carrying a hatchet had pounced from the shadows and began hacking away at her. Jeff and Kane seemed to be enjoying themselves, horrified but excited by the grim details they could see in front of them, like the goriest and most realistic film they had ever witnessed. Brian, on the other hand, felt nothing but discomfort and horror. He thought he would be okay seeing this, he was even somewhat curious about it, yet now it was happening in front of him, he wanted nothing but for it to stop. To save face, he remained in his chair, instead deciding to study the room trying to drown out the sounds of the woman's scream with his thoughts. Across from him, he could see the older couple enjoying the film, seemingly aroused by the content they were witnessing. Brian cringed at this too. The whole event had proven far darker and far more discomforting than anything he had previously experienced. He had made a mistake coming here. He looked up at the ceiling noticing another flashing red light as a second camera filmed from above. He studied it curiously before turning his head to see if he could find any more. To his surprise, several cameras were scattered around the room, pointing down into the audience. This didn't seem right. With all the secrecy involved in tonight's screening, why would they be recording so much of it? Why would they even want any evidence of it ever happening? He had finally had enough, jumping to his feet, instantly blocking the projection with his head. What are you doing? Sit down! Jeff hissed at him, now losing all patience for Brian's antics. I have to go, he said back, now unable to hide his discomfort and panic. He didn't care anymore, his focus was entirely on leaving and nothing else. He ignored them as they continued to demand he sat down, instantly turning with the intent to head straight for the door. But the moment he looked up at the end of the room, he froze. He was so confused and horrified by what he could see that he did not move a muscle. He simply stood there and watched. Jeff and Kane were now growing furious as Kane leaned forward to grab him and force him down with a yank. But as he reached over, the old man across the room finally shouted, What is this? Kane looked over at the older man and his wife, who were now both on their feet and staring at the back of the room. The atmosphere had quickly changed. The older man had gone from aloof and aroused to angry and nervous in what seemed to be the blink of an eye. Jeff and Kane turned back to see what was going on. Finally, 
they would see what Brian and the older couple were so shaken up about, as standing at the back of the room was the star of the film that they had just been watching. Like on the screen, he was wearing a cat mask, gripping a large hatchet in his hand as he studied the fearful audience in front of him. The two young men jumped to their feet, horrified and confused by what they were seeing, unaware that the cameras above were capturing every moment from several angles. Brian didn't try to escape after all. He knew there would be no way out. He knew that they hadn't been invited just to witness a snuff film. They had been invited to be the stars of a new one. It would take less than a week for the dark web to host an invitation to a brand new snuff creation. One that promised to be meta and unique. If you wish to see it, you would merely need to request the title. Snuff becomes reality for an unsuspecting audience. The term snuff film is a nuanced one, with several variables required to be in place for it to be considered legitimate snuff. To be considered a snuff film, somebody needs to be murdered whilst being filmed. This seems familiar enough, especially with the knowledge that everyone is walking around with a video camera on their phones in this day and age. That said, to many, there are specific criteria needed to be reached in order to receive its official moniker. These criteria state that it is not simply the act that qualifies a video recorded murder to be deserving of the title snuff film. It states that to be considered a fully fledged snuff, the primary purpose of the murder needs to be that of profit. And this is where the line is drawn. This criteria is often disputed and it depends on where you fall on this that decides how much of an urban legend the notion of a snuff film is. There have of course been occasions where people have been murdered on camera, times when somebody had accidentally been killed whilst being filmed, but this is almost always unintentional or for something similar to trophy collecting that killers have been known to do, neither of which are led by profit. A video of a man being beheaded by a terrorist organization is horrifying and tragic, however its purpose is usually to send a message more on a moral level than to create any financial gain. However, there are those out there that find this distinction daft, suggesting that the recording of the death itself entitles a film to hold the moniker of snuff. To those on this side of the fence, the notion that there needs to be no motivation other than to create a film is too limiting, as a violent psychopath who tortures and murders someone to satisfy his demons is still making a snuff film to fulfill a need. It is due to this that I have had to break down the two sides of snuff films. The first is that of a murder being filmed for any reason, filled with twisted and dark motivations to capture a death on camera. 
The second is the notion of a black market in the underworld that creates and distributes murders on film to the evil elite amongst us. There is no denying that the former most definitely exists, as many of us have even witnessed them for ourselves. It is the latter idea that confuses things, as it is so difficult to prove due to their very nature. It would be necessary for them to be almost impossible to track down for them to even exist in the first place. This leads us to a classic case of how conspiracy-like ideas thrive. As with this, the lack of evidence can be seen only to prove that they hide well, rather than show that they do not exist to begin with. The noun snuff originally referred to the part of the candle wick that had already burned. The verb snuff meant to cut this off or kill it. This is said to have been a common term for those who died from disease or by accident in Victorian London for many years. It has also been argued that the notion of snuff films existed far earlier than we may originally imagine, evoking the principle that it was always an inevitability once moving pictures were invented. It was in 1907 that a Polish-French writer named Guillaume Apollinaire published a short story titled A Good Film. The story followed a newsreel journalist who staged and filmed a murder due to the public's fascination with crimes in the news. In this story, the public believes the murder to be authentic until the police confirm it as fake. To many, the term snuff film became what it is today after being used in Ed Sanders' book, The Family, in 1971. This book delved into the world of Charles Manson and his followers, with a large amount of gossip and information spread through nothing but word of mouth. Here, the term snuff was used about other supposed murders the family had committed and filmed, now buried in a Californian desert to maybe one day be uncovered. In the summer of 1969, Manson and his followers stole an NBC news truck filled with film equipment, and according to one anonymous source, they used this equipment to make snuff films. However, it is worth noting that this person also admitted that they never actually saw the footage. Film equipment was found by the police at a later date, although no signs of anything like this ever appeared, nor any sign of their existence at all. In 1971, husband and wife filmmaking team Michael and Roberta Finlay headed to South America with a budget of $30,000 to film a slasher flick by the name of Slaughter. This was heavily inspired by the existence of the Manson family and the murders they committed. The film was considered a disaster, so flawed that it couldn't possibly be released, and so it sat on the shelf where it looked as though it would remain. That was until years later, when Alan Shackleton, a man known as an early name in the exploitation film market and the head of Monarch Releasing Corporation, had an idea to help the film finally get released. For years up to this point, rumors had circulated of snuff films arriving at the borders of the USA from South America, and although it was widely believed by many to be true, it does seem that at this time, it was nothing but an urban legend. And this is what Shackleton used to his advantage. He hired a man by the name of Carter Stevens to film an extra five minutes of footage that they could splice into the film's ending. In this new edit, 
As slaughter ended, the camera angle would switch to a new shot, depicting the crew wrapping up another day of shooting, giving the audience a peek into the behind the scenes of the film. During this, things amongst the team get weird and sexual between a supposed female crew member and the director. This, in turn, becomes violent as other crew members arrive, handing tools to the director that he could use to tear his victim to pieces viciously whilst the camera captured it all on film. This continues until the camera runs out of film, suggesting to the audience that this is not the end of the horror, but merely the end of what the camera could capture. With its shiny new title simply being Snuff, the film no longer had any end credits, suddenly ending with the horrifying footage at the end. Along with the new title, several taglines were also associated with it, with the most famous being filmed in South America where life is cheap, a tagline that rightly would not land well with today's audiences. Nobody seemed to believe that the film itself was a snuff film, although it seemed enough to entice audiences to see it. The controversy only heightened public curiosity as women's rights organizations began to picket where the films were shown. However, it has been suggested that the flames of this picketing were started and stoked by the filmmakers themselves as a marketing ploy. The notion of snuff films have continued to spread throughout the years since then, with many investigations leading to nothing but confirmation of their non-existence, at least at this level. There are two films that are reported to be legitimate snuff and are worth mentioning. These are the South American films Snake Feast and Gatorbait 10. The former is reported to be a video of young girls being eaten by snakes whilst the latter is a video of 10 young women being torn apart by a pack of alligators. In many places, these have become synonymous with the stories of snuff films, although no objective evidence of their existence has ever been found outside of the circles that claim to have seen them. In 1978, a compilation film was released under the title of Faces of Death. This film mixed fake and scripted scenes with natural deaths, including suicide, executions, and fatal accidents. This to some fits into the category of snuff film. It is a film with actual death, and the primary purpose was to turn a profit. However, it once again steps down from the snuff title in some people's minds due to the fact that not one of the deaths in the film was made for the intention of the film itself, and instead they were all imported from different sources and news channels. In 1980, what is widely accepted to be the most famous film that will be mentioned was released under the title of Cannibal Holocaust. The documentary-style movie first set the scene into realism by featuring the very real death of animals in cruel and insidious ways setting up the notion that what we were seeing was legitimate and authentic. The film was, in many ways, making a strong point, as it played on the notion that it was not the uncivilized tribes that were to be feared, but the white invaders who would do whatever possible to take what they needed. However, this overall message was lost on many audiences, as the main attraction quickly became just how realistic it seemed 
making viewers question how fake it truly was. This notion was helped by the director, Ruggiero Diodato, who had arranged contracts with the actors to not appear publicly for 12 months after the film's release. It was a very clever idea to create some marketing, and one that was copied with tremendous success years later with the Blair Witch Project. Unfortunately for the director, the realism of the murders and the actual killings of the starring animals meant that he would be arrested mere weeks after the film's release. He was at first charged with obscenity due to the animal killings, although when a French magazine began to question whether the film was a snuff, the court amended the charges to something far more severe. Ruggiero was taken to court after being charged with the murder of his cast, who was still away in hiding due to contractual obligation. Luckily for him, and in a somewhat dramatic fashion, he broke the contract with the actors and they finally took the stand to prove that they were very much alive. This revelation led to the charges being dropped and Ruggiero was eventually freed. Although, the story of Cannibal Holocaust would now forever go down as one of the strangest events in film history. In 1985, a Japanese film was released under the name of Guinea Pig 2, Flower of Flesh and Blood. This film was considered so graphic and realistically done that it bordered on the territory of a snuff film. Often associated with this film is the story of when actor Charlie Sheen got hold of a copy of it. He was reportedly so horrified by what he saw that he immediately contacted the FBI to begin an investigation into how real it was. Although, it seems that this is nothing more than an urban legend in itself. What is true is just how realistic and horrifying the film was said to be. It was considered so realistic in fact that it was withdrawn from the market in Japan. In 1992, a British man named Christopher Burhound found himself in trouble with the law after importing a copy of the film into the United Kingdom. The prosecution argued that although the film did not feature real footage of an actual homicide, it could nevertheless be categorized as a snuff film due to its realistic depiction. This may seem over the top when we remember that, no matter how realistic it was, the facts were that it was not actually real. Even so, Christopher was fined £600 for having it in his possession. Since then, several films have claimed to be snuff, and far more have had their authenticity questioned. The notion of snuff films have become mainstream and widely accepted as a reality around the world. There are several movies based on the idea of snuff films, with one being widely considered the most disturbing film of all time, simply titled A Serbian Film. The dark, twisted, but believable aspects of snuff films makes for a compelling set piece in film, books, and other narratives. It is a believable but utterly twisted notion that plays on the audience's imaginations, as they wonder, what if? It is such a realistic concept, especially with our knowledge of sex trafficking, murder, and abuse. It is this understanding that makes it such a strange urban legend, as it very much depends on where you consider the threshold to be. Through my research, I have found the notion of a criminal underworld creating dark content for the elites is most likely more of an urban legend, with Illuminati or QAnon level conspiracy theories attached to it. 
However, just because there may not be a shadowy underworld organization murdering on film for profit, does not mean it has never happened on an individual level. It also does not change the fact that the qualifications needed to be considered snuff differ depending on who it is you ask. With that in mind, if we change our understanding of snuff to instead be a murder being filmed, then it is undeniably true and not an urban legend at all. It seems that we once again find the true accounts of urban legends to be very real, although far lesser than what the original legends suggest them to be. Although, with what we know in the world, with what content we know to exist out there involving dark and twisted content, we still need to understand that there may very well be more truth to the darker aspects of this legend than the current evidence suggests. The notion is so hard to let go of, as it is so typical for the average person to be that curious about death. Surely, there are those out there that take it that step further. Surely, there are those looking to capitalize on that. We may not be able to confirm entirely just how deep the dark web will take us down this rabbit hole, but there are certain things we can confirm. One of them is that there have been several accounts of people purposely recording a premeditated murder taking place, and it is due to this that we can confidently state, regardless of whether you draw the line at finances or not, that some form of snuff film most definitely exists in our world. If you've been listening to my show for some time now, you'll have most likely noticed that there's large gaps between seasons. I often receive comments, messages, and emails from listeners requesting our return, and I do sincerely wish that these gaps could be shorter. You see, when delving into the captivating tales of folklore and urban legends, there's a lot to uncover, and it's extremely important to me that we maintain our standard of accuracy. But this takes time. I create this content and release it for free, and this won't change. But the show does require support. So if you love what we do, and you want to be part of Urban Legends' continued expansion, then you can join us over at Patreon by following the link in our show notes. Through Patreon, you can spare as little as £3 a month to support the show and ensure its longevity. As a Patreon supporter, you'll receive each new chapter the Friday before its official release date every week, giving you early access. On top of this, there'll be no ads, and you'll also receive a private podcast feed just for you. You'll also receive a discount code for all of our upcoming merchandise and have access to behind-the-scenes looks into our progress. You'll also have access to our group chat on the Patreon app, where you can talk to myself and others about all things folklore. And to show my gratitude, I'll personally thank each of you at the end of every chapter. The minimum cost of a subscription is less than a cup of coffee. However, I'm running this through a honor system, giving you the opportunity to give more if you wish and are able to do so. So please do give what you can. If you can't do that, or if you want to know what more you can do, then please do leave us a rating on Spotify, a review on Apple Podcast, or anywhere else you listen to our show. 
The more we grow, the faster these turnarounds will be. You can find out more and join us by following the Patreon link in our show notes and clicking join. So come with us and let's uncover the mysteries of urban legends together. But for now, back to the legend. On the 25th of May 2012, a video was uploaded to an extreme gore website called bestgore.com. The video was titled, One Lunatic, One Ice Pick, seemingly playing on the previously viral videos of two girls one cup and one man one jar. In this new video, a man wearing a purple hoodie repeatedly stabs his victim with an ice pick and a kitchen knife before dismembering and sodomizing them. The victim was Jung Lin, also known as Justin Lin. He was living in Montreal, Canada as an international student from Wuhan. Jung Lin was last seen on the 24th of May, one day before the video upload, where he was captured on CCTV, entering an apartment building that he would never leave. The man in the purple hoodie was Luca Magnotta, desperate for fame and attention by any means necessary. He was failing as a porn star and an escort, and was rejected for several reality TV shows. He seemed to eventually get some of the notoriety he so desperately desired, when he began to film himself torturing a series of animals, most notably kittens. It seems that after a while, he required more infamy than he was receiving with just hurting animals, and thus had decided to up his game to a new low. Once his new, darker and horrifying video was uploaded, some of its earlier viewers found it so disturbing that they actively reported it to the police. At first it seems as though the police refused to take the claim seriously, most likely due to the content of the site and the many stories of snuff films turning out to be hoaxes. But once they looked a little closer, they realized that what they were seeing was, in fact, very real. A couple of days after this realization, the situation grew far more severe as a package containing the victim's left foot was delivered to the headquarters of the Conservative Party of Canada, whilst another package containing a left hand was stopped in transit, intended for the Liberal Party. Eventually, a search was underway for Luca Magnotta, and he was ultimately apprehended in Germany. You can find far more information on this case by watching the fascinating documentary Don't Fuck With Cats, which delves into the story deeply. Still, I will not give the man any more attention than that, as this is exactly what he so desperately desires. He had made a snuff film, not for the currency of money, but the currency of likes. This was a recent event, although it was most definitely not the first of its kind, as in 1989 it seemed as though the even darker side of snuff film had almost become a reality. Daniel Depew and Dean Lambie had plotted for several months to kidnap a randomly selected young boy. Once captured, 
They intended to abuse and eventually murder them with the intention of making a pornographic snuff film. Bafflingly, the two men from Virginia, USA, wrote this on a computer bulletin board for all to see. And this, quite obviously, caught the attention of the FBI. The two men were shortly arrested and taken to court. However, their defense suggested that it was nothing more than a sick fantasy they were playing out, with no real intention of actually going ahead with the plan or ever actually hurting anybody. Even so, the twisted men were sentenced to 30 years or more in prison. During the research of this urban legend, I stumbled across things I wish I hadn't. I've seen images and video stills that I hope with all my heart are hoaxes. I couldn't bring myself to go any further with it to confirm or deny that about them. I've seen deep dives into the world of snuff films and paedophile rings with stacks of apparent evidence. However, these also tended to go alongside some more outlandish conspiracy theories and an alarming amount of extremely racist terminologies. With that in mind, I take the apparent evidence supplied by these propaganda sites with a pinch of salt. This has been a strange urban legend to research, as on many levels, it has been harder to physically explore and psychologically push through, as much of what I have seen and read are things I do not wish to return to. I've seen claims that the idea of people owning snuff films is stupid and too risky, claiming to have gone to screenings themselves where they were invited to an isolated space to witness the films at extremely high costs. It may seem illogical for a group of elites to meet up in such a risky way, although it is not hard to see why the notion is not far-fetched for people. We all know that money is power in most places, and we also know of what people like Jeffrey Epstein and Harvey Weinstein were able to get away with due to this power. The notion of murder for business seems to be more of an urban legend than not, although I would be insincere if I did not also admit that I would not be surprised to one day find evidence that proves this to be true. Until then, the notion of murder being filmed for pleasure is very much a dark reality in the world, and it will continue into the future, especially with how accessible recording equipment is now. Murder for profit would be one of the darkest aspects of capitalism and a horrifying stain on media content. There may be no proof of a thriving snuff film industry in the underbelly of society, and we may not officially know of any shadowy figures creating content for the rich and powerful. However, there are most definitely things incomprehensible caught on film and consumed for pleasure. We may see them as the boogeyman of the film industry, the horrors behind filmmaking. But ask yourself, if you were in a room where a snuff film was playing beside you, would you not, at the very least, be tempted to take a look yourself? Urban Legends is researched, written and produced by Luke Mordew. Original score by Billy Jupp, with additional sounds from storyblocks.com. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, click subscribe on your chosen podcast provider and delve into the mysteries of our previous and future chapters. To find more, 
including merchandise, video content, images, and more. Visit urbanlegendsfolklore.com. If you have more information or a correction on something mentioned in this chapter, please get in touch through our website. We aim to ensure that all information provided is accurate and up-to-date, and this remains a top priority. If you want to support the show, receive early access, and have more of a say in what we do, then become a patron by clicking the link in our show notes. For these chapters in video format, simply search Urban Legends Folklore on YouTube. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, and Threads, and join our Facebook group by searching Urban Legends Folklore.